people really can't realize what an immersive environment a newspaper comics page was back in those days. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the disappearing period uh, because we always are talking about news about sensationalistic things. I don't know if we're always doing that, but we do that sometimes. Uh, I, I found a comic strip that was directly related to this. Or I don't know if you call it a strip or a comic panel, but it was a web comic called PhD Comics. Have you heard of this one? No, don't know that one. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a professor and he's staring at his computer screen and he is typing into it. He's typing, okay. That's his only response. Okay. Uh, now if he does that with, without a period, that means that it's truly okay. There's, there's a whole, um, column of explanations of how to read the email Uh one of them is if there's no period then that really is okay just relax everything's fine but if there's a period after it okay period Uh uh-oh you're in trouble there's something that's being left unsaid Uh now this kind of jives with what we were talking about right yeah and and then the the if there's two periods that's probably a typo so you don't you you could just put down down to professors don't proofread their emails, <laughs> right? There's also O K A A A Y. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which means really? <laughs> yeah, they don't cover that one. This is strictly punctuation related, right. but yeah, yeah. Well, if there's three periods, uh, a caution. Uh-huh. Yeah, that could be an eye roll. That could be sarcasm. So you can infer the opposite of what was actually written if there's three periods. Okay, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, I kind of I kind of get this. And the, and the next one is if there's four periods. And this says, why are you bothering me? I can't believe you want me to respond to this trivial matter. <laughs> and if there's five to eight periods, replying to you was so boring, I leaned on the keyboard by accident and didn't notice. And if there's anything more than nine periods, that means your advisor is a teenager or is going crazy. You had better look for another one. So I I, I just thought that was a pretty amusing comic. Uh, and I, I was thinking, oh, I've got to, I've got to share this with Paul because he, he loves comics. You've sent me some web comics in the past that uh, were related to grammar and we've and usage and we've talked about some of those yeah most of those are actually newspaper comic strips that which are reproduced on the web rather than web-based comics right and and both phenomena are prevalent these days there are there are some web exclusive comics and oh lots and, uh, <laughs> if you're in the newspapers uh, if 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 you used to find the that a comic strip in your newspaper that's no longer published in your local town <laughs> because newsprint is going out of business uh you can find that one online now yeah there's an amazing range of of things out there and i don't know how long they can last but uh, it's it's a good thing for those of us that love the american comic strip in its classic form which is uh intense interest of mine 
Yeah, well, speaking of which, uh, what about that interest? Where did this come from? It started really early for me. Um, my We subscribed to our local newspaper, uh, Petaluma Argus Courier, when I was a kid. And in fact, I was a paper boy for them for five years. But they didn't publish a Sunday paper. So after church, my dad would stop in the little town store and pick up the San Francisco Chronicle. And that's where I got to read the Sunday comics, which was a treat. I always had Dick Tracy at the top of the front page, uh, Prince Valiant inside, and uh, lots of others I followed very eagerly. And I don't remember this, but my mother told me that I taught myself to read before going to school by reading the comics. I must have had a little help. But um, by the time I entered first grade, I could already read quite a bit because, because of the comic strips. And I never gave up my interest in comics. It was something that uh, stuck with me through my whole life. My interest in science fiction has come and gone in waves, but I've, I've never not been <laughs> interested in comic strips. When I say that I, I have this collection of comic strips, often when I'm just showing people around the house and they come in and see my library, the first reaction in most people is, oh, well, you mean like Spider-Man? And I said, okay, um, this is comic strips, and you're thinking of comic books? It's a, a different world. And of course, the earliest comic books were simply reprints of comic strips, and they're sometimes... Uh, Books, comic books have been spun off into strips, and so there is a relationship, but they really are very different markets, very different worlds. Which is interesting to me, because that is a misconception that people have, is comics is comics is comics. But if you think about it, there are people who are really obsessed with Marvel comics or DC comics, and these really were produced as little magazines, really, and stuck out on the racks, and they never appeared in the, in the daily newspaper. Not for the most part, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I developed an interest, especially in older comics. And when I was working at the university in Pullman, Washington State University, I decided to try to, first of all, I ran into the library into some reprints of very old comics, things like The Gumps, <laughs> which was once the most popular comic strip in America is almost entirely forgotten today. It's actually kind of boring. But <laughs> do do you know anything about the Gumps? Who were the characters, or what was? Yeah, it was a family strip. It had very long plot arcs. Um, they would go on various adventures, um, but it was a, essentially Andy Gump was this guy with a handlebar mustache, looked kind of geeky, and uh, his wife was named Min. And his catchphrase was, oh, men, which he would shout at the end of a strip very frequently, and their family. And it was um, a little bit like Family Circle or High and Lois uh, today. Um, mm. Got in The uh, guy who created it was paid fabulous sums of money. I don't remember what his salary was, but he was paid like a modern movie star or an, well, not a modern movie star, but <laughs> taking into account mm -hmm. inflation. Yeah. He got rich mm -hmm. off this thing. Um, and I think it was an innovative strip for its time, but it, it has not borne up well, but I decided to see what else was out there. One that I always liked was the Tunerville trolley. And if you want to look it up on YouTube, there's uh, there's a Tunerville trolley animated um, one that's quite nice, and uh, that one the the art is terrific. So I decided the way to do this because most 
older comic strips were not reprinted and were just simply not available um, was to use microfilm. So I would go to the library for an hour or two at a time and sit down with a reel of microfilm with uh, the Chicago Tribune. And that was the newspaper, uh, Hearst newspaper, that had uh, very famous comic strips in it. Many great comic strips started there. I started with 1905 and then started reading forward. And it was a real challenge because in the there was not a comics page at first. What they would do is have a in the daily edition, the daily comics would be scattered across the paper, and you'd have to page through each page looking for a comic at the top of the page. Oh, it's a little like the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where the, there's not, the, the panels are just interspersed all around. Right, and they didn't have at first a, a comic supplement, a Sunday supplement, but that changed uh, quite a bit. Anyway, I did that for quite a long time until I got involved in a, another research project that sort of ate up the rest of my time. But what's happened in recent years, uh, in the last decade or so, is that there are a lot of people out there, evidently like me, who are interested in the old comics. And there is a tremendous number of volumes coming out from uh, IDW, Library of American Comics, and from Fantagraphics here in Seattle, reprinting old comics. And they do it in multi-volumes and often try to do the, the complete run. I've collected, for instance, the first 50 years of Prince Valiant that Fantagraphics did. They did it once before, and they're doing it now again in a new new version. So I'm calling this the golden age of newspaper comics collection. And I don't know if the fact that they may be on the brink of extinction <laughs> these people to want to conserve them more, but uh, there does seem to be a market for them. My interest in, in the humanities was always in exploring the past and seeing the roots of things and looking for the classics and so on. So it extended to this hobby as well. One of the things that uh, you run into immediately when you start to look at older comics, particularly the Sunday comics, is seeing how much more graphically complex and interesting they are than, than modern ones. And the reason for that is newspapers used to be much bigger than they are. That is not only thicker, but taller and wider. If you look at pictures of people reading the newspaper, man with his arms wide outstretched holding up the newspaper, there was lots of room. And uh, Prince Valiant, for instance, for much of his history was printed as a full page and a single panel uh, could be maybe hmm, four by six inches, something like that. You could put a whole castle and several horses and uh, a lot of trees in the background and all kinds of detail and get an extraordinary thing. And you look at today's squished little comics, which the newspapers have crunched down to almost nothing. And um, it's just pathetic. <laughs> there's, there's just no comparison. So it's changed from a largely graphic medium where the artist had a lot of free rain and influence to mainly a vehicle for jokes with minimal illustration. There's some still some people who do a good job uh, of drawing, but uh, it's so neglected, the visual art is so neglected that my pet peeve is the Seattle Times, which is a wonderful paper I subscribe to and I love it. I think they do a great job with the news, but I don't read the comics in there paper because they have elected to shrink their comics so much that they 
actually squeeze the panels so that Charlie Brown's head, for instance, is not a circle. It's more egg-shaped. Oh, it's it's not even proportionately shrunk. Yeah. They'll just smoosh it down in one direction. Um, and the other thing that really attracted me to older comics um, was the, the long-form narratives, the stories that continued from day to day, from week to week, sometimes for a year or more, and Prince Valiant, again, being, you know, truly epic length, um, related to my interest in novels, of course, and, and movies and things like that. So the, the comic strip grew up along with the movies. And I've talked before about how Winsor McKay was influenced by and actually made movies in the making of his strip, Little Nemo. Uh, some, some of the comics artists really were influenced by the look of movies as well. That's something that's pretty much missing from today. So today's is something you look at with a quick glance. You don't, aren't expected to remember from day to day what's going on most of the time. Just daily jokes. I'm, I'm going to concentrate today, I think, in talking about this and, and what I consider the, the golden age of comic strips, 1895 to 1945. Now, there are a lot of people who will try to take the history of the comic strip earlier, and if you call it sequential art, uh, you can go back, say, to the Middle Ages, where it was common for an illustration or a painting to show various stages, say, um, Jesus uh, carrying the cross to Calvary and Calvary and then being hung on it and then resurrected. And you might have all these events depicted in the same picture. Or you could go back to the ancient Egyptian wall paintings showing various stages in planting and harvesting grain or something like that. But really, those don't have any connection with the American comic strip. Um, in Germany, you can find a few predecessors in Switzerland. The comic panel, the uh, joke panel, such as you found in, in Punch magazine, um, precedes the comic strip. But the idea of a newspaper comic strip is a distinctively American invention and something that spread to many countries, but uh, not all by any means. But it's still very, very one of the great American contributions, along with jazz. So the one that is usually pointed to as uh, an important beginning, uh, not necessarily the absolutely first comic, but the one that really had a huge success and led to all the others is Richard Alcult's The Yellow Kid. Uh, started in 1895. It, it only ran for three years. It featured this little bald kid wearing a, a smock, like a very simple dress, really, but he's a, he's a boy, and he speaks by the lettering on his smock, which was printed in a bright yellow, and it was set in Hogan's Alley. Now, the first assumption of most people might be yellow kid wearing this smock, uh, this must be some kind of a Orientalist vision. But no, he's Irish. And the idea was that he's an Irish immigrant living in an Irish immigrant tenement. And he was very lively and he often was commenting on the scene around him. It was a published in the Hearst newspapers, and uh, Hearst kind of pushed Alcult to use it as propaganda. So Hearst was known for, especially for his role in fomenting the Spanish-American War. And he used uh, the Yellow Kid to, to push certain political ideas. And some of the critics of his newspapers um, began to refer to 
his kind of journalism as yellow journalism. It was called yellow kid journalism at first, and then yellow journalism, and we still use that term today, although most people have lost track of what the roots were. So the yellow kid, this this uh, scheme that Hearst had to use the yellow kid in this way, it, it worked? It, it, I called I called did. Oh, yeah. He sold that vast quantities of newspapers. It was he. He was in a, a big fight, I think, with Pulitzer that uh, over the newspaper market, and the Yellow Kid was a, a major, major factor in the success of his newspapers. But but it, but if I go back and read the Yellow Kid now, I will see lots of propaganda. Is that well? That's what they say. The ones that I have read are more folky. I think people don't consider the propagandistic ones worth reprinting probably mm. uh, it's not it's not something that i have explored in any depth i see but anyway, that, that's how the story goes that that's how yellow journalism came to be huh okay. it was not strictly a strip it was what's called a panel it was just one large rectangle with a, an abundance of detail in it with lots of things going on and then the yellow kid commenting on what was going on with these letter the lettering on his yellow smock yeah now, Alcol uh, left behind the Yellow Kid to start at the true, really first big successful comic strip, and that was Buster Brown. And there's an odd evolution in Buster Brown. When I was a kid and used to listen to the radio in the 1940s, um, there was a Buster Brown radio show uh, starring Froggy the Gremlin and his friends. And... There, Buster Brown was not on the show at all. It was sponsored by Buster Brown Shoes. And in the ads, you would hear Buster Brown promote the shoes. And uh, that, that was the limit of Buster Brown's involvement. But then people began to think uh, Buster Brown was depicted as this person uh, in a frilly costume. He was a little boy, and he had these uh, long curls and frilly costume and sort of very definitely girlish looking. And so there came to be a stereotype associated with Buster Brown that he must be some kind of sissy. But if you look back at the old original strips, uh, the first thing you have to know is that in that time, it was common to dress little boys in essentially girls' dresses that uh, from the time of you stop being a baby, well, even starting with a baby, putting them in gowns, and there was a certain age that they would graduate out of these little dresses into short pants. And this kid is a little old to be wearing this, but anyway, it was meant to be incongruous. And he was a terror. He was the Bart Simpson of his day. He would do just outrageous things and was always making a mess and creating chaos and getting in trouble, having to be punished by his parents. That happened every Sunday. This was a Sunday comic strip. And and then the end, they would have a panel called Resolved. Now, this was supposed to be moral. I mean, it's just, it, it suggested that this would be like a moral. What lesson have I learned by doing this? But he wouldn't, he wouldn't say, I have learned not to tease the cat. He would make some kind of outrageous pronouncements about some some other thing that he wanted to do. So it wasn't an apology at all. And he was just a, a perfectly outrageous character. But the look of him became so dated that I, I don't think he could be ever successfully revived. But there have been plenty of uh, 
troublemaking kids since then. And he's a descendant of Tom Sawyer. The idea of the uh, of the bad boy has always been popular in American popular culture, and Buster Brown was a classic example. Mm-hmm. The next big influential strip was the Cats and Jammer Kids, Rudolph Dirks, uh, 1912. He was inspired by uh, a book by Wilhelm Busch, Max and Moritz, which was about two outrageous little boys that pulled all kinds of pranks and then are horribly killed in the last chapter. This is part of the 19th century tendency to do heavily moralistic children's books in which uh, trying to terrify kids into not misbehaving by uh, telling them how horribly they'll be killed if they do the wrong thing. But uh, Dirks was sort of celebrating the uh, just total anarchy. And there is a certain pleasure that people take, I think, in seeing somebody just cut loose and behave in totally uncontrolled fashion and then get punished for it in the end so that the order is restored. I think some people who own misbehaving dogs are like this. They, they say, oh, look how he tore up the couch. It's so funny. You know, I, yeah, okay. So the Hans and Fritz, uh, these two little kids, and it was set in an odd uh, setting of a Pacific tropical island, but there was these German couple, the captain and his wife, and the two kids, and the kids pulling pranks all the time, mainly on the captain, and then getting spanked very strongly. This had an interesting uh evolution in that Dirks decided that he didn't like being controlled by the Hearst. This was another Hearst comic. Mm-hmm. And the Hearst people owned the rights to the comics. Uh, the artists and the uh, writers did their work for hire. So it was not considered their property. And uh, so this led to a lot of disputes and bad feelings. And Dirks fairly soon left the Hearst newspapers and started a rival strip with the same characters doing the same things with the same look, but he called it the Captain and the Kids. So Cast and Jammer Kids and the Captain and the Kids coexisted for 65 years with somebody else taking over the old Cast and Jammer Kids strip in the Hearst papers. Hmm. In fact, I don't think I ever read the original Kess and Jammer Kids. I grew up reading The Captain and the Kids. This seems horribly dated. It's all with this thick German dialect, uh, which is dialect humor is not popular as it used to be. And the the spanking is uh, not as popular as it used to be. Uh, But believe it or not, this strip is still being made and still appearing in a few papers. And you can read it online. Uh, the Captain and the Kids? No, the Cats and Jammer Kids. And it is the longest running strip in all of history. I, I wasn't aware at all that it was still in existence. Uh, I wasn't either until I just stumbled on it on the, on the web. Uh-huh. Um, and then an, a much shorter running strip, but still hugely influential, was George Harriman's Crazy Cat. Ran from 1913 to 1944. Another Hearst comic. And um, when you describe Crazy Cat to people trying to get them interested in it, it's almost impossible. What you have to do is sit them down and show it to them because it sounds terrible. There's an old tradition of reversing the cat and mouse theme so that um, the cat is the victim of the mouse (laughs) and Tom and Jerry is a classic example of that, where Jerry consistently outwits Tom. But in uh, Crazy Cat, um, the mouse, Ignatz, absolutely hates Crazy. Crazy, however, 
thinks that Ignatz is in love with him or her because Crazy Cat is a shifting gender in these days of interest in transsexuality. Crazy Cat would be a, a great totem because sometimes he's a he and sometimes she's a she. But um, Crazy thinks uh, that Ignatz adores her and Ignatz's way of expressing his contempt is to throw a brick at Crazy's head. And so almost every strip, not every single one, but a very large majority of the time, it ends with, in some way or another, a brick being thrown at this cat's head, and then the cat saying, little darling. For some reason, he speaks in a sort of mangled Yiddish accent and thinks that that was a token of his, of love. And so Ignace is completely frustrated because the more he tries to express his hostility to crazy, the more crazy thinks that he's being uh, loving. And there's a third character, Officer Pup, who is a bulldog, and he is in love with Crazy, but uh, Crazy's not interested. And Officer Pup is always trying to protect Crazy from Ignatz and arresting Ignatz and throwing him in jail. All right. So, so far, it sounds completely unappealing, right? But the strip is one of the most sophisticated ever made. It combined this extreme slapstick with very clever wordplay, sometimes multilingual, and amazing art. One of the things that Herman did was to make the background at every strip change. It was set in the southwest, in Arizona, in Coquino County. I was astounded one time to find myself in Coquino County, and I said, oh, this is a real place. He didn't make it up. But the mesas and, and cactuses and whatever else are appearing in the frame are constantly morphing, changing, even though the character is staying in the same spot, and the color of the sky and the ground are constantly changing, and he does all sorts of interesting things with the art. And the, the stories get very complex and really subtle and, and i think the first strip where often you had to sit down and sort of puzzle it out and say okay what's going on here exactly there's one for instance that involves mrs quack quack who's a, a duck uh, pouring ink down a hole up in the upper left hand corner of the page and it goes through a whole bunch of different transitions and then down in the last chapter you find the ink pouring out over Ignatz as he's peeking out of his jail cell between the bars. And then in, at the very bottom of the page, you can see that it actually washed him out of the jail and he's crawling out of an ink bottle. But you'd really have to study it hard and think about it. It's almost like doing a crossword puzzle or something. And so it asks for a lot of intellect. So the strip was not hugely popular. Like Little Nemo, um, the, the people who were sophisticated and, and liked the intellectual challenge of the, and appreciated the visual art, uh, liked it a lot. And William Randolph Hearst liked it a lot. It was his favorite. And lots of newspapers said, we would rather not publish this crazy cat strip. Nobody knows what it's about. We don't understand it. The public doesn't like it. We want to drop it. And you'd say, nope, it's mandatory. If you're a Hearst newspaper, you have to run crazy cat. It was the subject of uh, a major essay early on, uh, a book called um, my Celtics, the seven lively arts and made into a ballet. And it, it just has had a huge, huge influence in the arts. It's not something the general public knows a lot about. Um, but when you look at cartoons a lot, you'll find that often there are references to crazy cat in one way or another and other people's comic strips. Even today, it's, it's just a real classic. The, this idea of, elevating the form of the comic strip into something that's closer to high art 
reminds me of a story that I remember from a, a professor of art history when I was in college. Uh, he described going to a screening of Mr. Magoo. <laughs> and uh, at the time, Mr. Magoo had attained that status of, well, this this cartoon, these were animated shorts. They were screening them at uh, at an art museum. And he took his kids to go see it. And he thought, well, this will be fun. This will be a fun thing. And a lot of people brought their kids. And he said he was sitting behind uh, a couple of of art students or possibly uh, a little older than art students. Maybe they were, they were teachers. But he said that the people in front of him turned their heads and surveyed the crowd and saw all of the kids and said, well, this is obviously not a Magoo crowd. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the common misconceptions about comic strips is that they're aimed at kids. And uh, sometimes you'll see people complaining, oh, this is not fit for a comics page mm. of a newspaper because look at the children that will read it. Most children do not read comic strips anymore. And even in the very early days, a lot of them were aimed at adults. Um, the the sophistication necessary to understand a lot of them. And the next one I want to talk about uh, could be read by any age, but it had a strong appeal for adults, and specifically for adult women. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank King is one of the great innovators in comics, and he did, a for a while, a panel called Gasoline Alley, which was about the the burgeoning popularity of automobiles in the United States. And it was a, a single panel, and it would have these friends who were neighbors and gathered together in the alley in back of their houses and, and discuss cars. And that didn't last very long. His publisher said, you know, we need to get more women reading our paper. And I'd like you to do something with these characters and make it something that women readers could take an interest in. And so he created this comic strip, Gasoline Alley, which n- no longer had the the point of its name really uh, functioning. Uh, it created the character of Walt Wallet, uh, who is this overweight but extremely kind, well-meaning but somewhat bumbling um, character, fairly young at that time. He probably you would guess he'd be in his early 30s, maybe something like that. And one day he wakes up and finds that a baby has been abandoned on his doorstep, and that is Skeezix. And he goes on a years-long adventure trying to find who has left this baby on his doorstep, and he never formally adopts him that I can remember, but he certainly starts raising him. And when I discovered these early strips, I could really identify with because I was a single father myself raising a, a daughter. And the idea of watching a kid grow and seeing it through a man's eyes. And then, of course, he has to meet a woman and uh, fall in love and eventually get married. And it becomes, I don't want to say soap opera-ish because that uh, sounds denigrating. It's a wonderful family drama sort of story. Sometimes it's high adventure. Sometimes it's just joking around. It was very influential on Lynn Johnston's For Better or For Worse comic, which is, uh, of course, the Canadian artist who's now in reruns, but that's, I think, another great family comic strip. It was uh, 
very innovative in a striking way in that he decided to make his characters age year by year. So Skizik started out as a baby and a year later he was one year old and a year later he was two years old and so on. And, and uh, Lynn Johnston did the same thing with her strip. There have been very few others that have done that. It's a bit of a, a challenge and it's continued to this day. Gasoline Alley is still being done. It's a pale shadow of its former self and Frank King is long gone. But, um, the characters are still aging, and, and poor old uh, Walt is so old that they, they're now, when he on rare occasions appears in the strip, the joke is how old he is. So 1918, long time ago. Um, the stories were complex. They're being reprinted in volumes that are called Walt and Skeezics. And I think maybe what they want to do is reprint the whole sequence that focuses mostly on Walt and Skeezics. Eventually, move, they move on to other generations. But on Sundays... The art was truly magnificent. He did beautiful things with color and uh, sometimes influenced by Japanese art. Um, In every autumn, he would go for a walk in the woods with his little boy and watch the autumn color. And he would do different innovative treatment of creating the the splashy colors of autumn. People really can't realize what an immersive environment a newspaper comics page was back in those days, where if you were a little kid and you lay down on the rug with the newspaper spread out in front of you, you could get lost in it. It was like a super 70 millimeter movie or a widescreen TV high definition today. Uh, a world to be explored, not just a little rectangle that was right under your nose. And these, uh, some of these have been reprinted in gigantic volumes at the original format size. Uh, and I, I have some of those. So the, one of the things that is annoying about the strip, as with a lot of these early strips, is the stereotyping of African-American characters. He has a, a black cook who mangles English and um, has, has is fairly stereotyped in a lot of ways, but on the other hand, she's also often quite smart and has a, a more rounded character than you might expect. She's not just a simple quote cartoon. Uh, she has some real interest to her, and she also has uh, a young man that courts her, and so on. But the it's still very stereotypically racially biased kind of portrait and uh, it's something that persisted in comics from the earliest days right up to through the mid uh, mid 1950s but uh, in later times it's been taken over by several other people and the current version is pretty lame i gotta say and but they've been experimenting most recently by doing nostalgia bits and nostalgia for really old nostalgia going back to the old radio show characters loman abner for instance and uh crazy cat has shown up in the strip and so on and and recently they've cast somebody who looks and acts identically like frank nelson from the old jack benny show he's the floor walker that used to say yes and be incredibly rude to jack benny when he yeah and it's uh it's interesting how how uh how frequently we seem to bring up the frank nelson character on this podcast (laughs) Yeah, we did talk about him before. Yeah, and but this is beyond. I mean, what they're doing now with this nostalgia is, uh, I think they're it's going a little bit beyond thinking. Well, people who will remember uh, Lum Nabner and Jack Benny show 
will really enjoy that we're sticking this in because you would almost just have to be a, a, a fanatic, a his, historical or a very old person. Or a very old person. But what I'm saying is those very old people, they can't, there can't be that large of an audience for that. I think this is, this must be put in for the benefit of people who are just, um, you know, highly interested in this, uh, in this history. And I, I'm finding it really interesting too, but I'd like to pick it up next week if we can. It, we're, we're talking about the history of American comic strips in the golden age from 1895 to 1945. We're just covering Gasoline Alley, which started in 1918. And there's a whole bunch of more history to go through, I, I think. Yeah, and I, I'd like right. to pick that up next week if we can. Okay, fine. All right, let's do that. Thank you, Paul. Great, thank you. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.